Welcome to our true crime, true family podcast. Quarantine equals no life, so we've decided to start a true crime podcast. I'm Emily, and along with my mom, Kate, and our cousin Paige, we will be discussing popular true crime documentaries and cases. Due to sensitive subject material and explicit language, viewer discretion is advised. Hey, we're back this week with the J- Oh, no. Hey, we're- It's one sentence. One sentence. I'm looking at what you wrote down. <laughs> We're back this week with the Jinx, episode three. Here with my cousin Paige and my mom Kate, who will get us started. Thanks for contributing <laughs> so deeply. She's like, "All right, back to TikTok." <laughs> <laughs> oh, like the Jinx is such a weird mm-hmm. thing. Like, I go, like, I hate him, and then I feel I bad know. for him, and then I hate him. You do feel bad for him. See, I always think there's, yeah, there's always going to be that little bit of, like, whatever he does, I feel bad for him because of, like, he watched his mom die, and his dad woke him mm-hmm. up to watch it. So, like, how are you going to be a normal person yeah. after that? Like. But then it's like, and he's also so stupid. It's like, he just doesn't even think he's like, oh, yeah. Like, and the thing is, is like, he does these bonehead things, but that you would probably get away with it if he hadn't just done like this one random thing that why. Would yeah, you if he hadn't that? stolen that hoagie, he would have still been on the lamp. Right. Oh, yeah. And then the note to the, like. Mm-hmm. Beverly Hill, it's just mm-hmm. insane. Um, so episode three starts. It's called the Gangster's Daughter, and Katie Kirk is doing a report, and it said she had everything to live for, and yet she just disappeared. Now, new and alarming questions are being raised about what happened to a young wife and medical student here in New York some twenty years ago. Um. Fun fact about Katie Couric. <laughs> when I was like little, she I guess she used to work for like like News 4 in like the DC area mm-hmm. or whatever. And my cousin Sean got in this horrible car accident. And so they were doing like a report, like not a report, but like one of like we're in the hospital, like blah 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 while they do blah blah, you know, whatever of this story. I don't know that they do that so much anymore unless it's like someone famous. But so we got to see her because we were in the hospital. (laughs) And um, they asked me to stop because I kept walking behind her so the camera would (laughs) pick me up and I was making faces. (laughs) I was like, I don't even know how old I was. I was tiny. I think we still lived in (laughs) D.C. Oh, it's funny. They're probably like that shitty little kid. So, like, can somebody please get this kid? (laughs) And then, like, I feel like after I kept asking my dad if I was famous (laughs) yet, he's like, sure. Another news report says, two decades later, Kathy Durst is suddenly more than a memory, thanks to a tip from a defendant in an unrelated case. And I was like, 
suddenly more than a memory like god like she does still have family they're probably like uh she's always been more than a memory to us now i don't know if i'm gonna say this guy's name right but detective joe becerra of the new york state police says he had arrested timothy martin he was arrested on several counts of public lewdness exposing himself to women and i wrote (laughs) who And it says he was convicted and shortly before sentencing, his attorney contacted the detective and stated that Timmy wanted to sit down and talk to him about some information he had about an old murder that occurred in Northwest Chester. And I was like, that seems convenient. Like he is like, no, I know some things. Can I get a lighter sentence? Well, don't they all try that? I feel like a lot of people probably try that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really stale. Like, it annoys me when people do that. So they show a newspaper clipping, and it says, the snitch told cops Kathleen was killed in Westchester. Like, the snitch, God. (laughs) Timmy says Kathy was murdered by her husband. Gilberti says, Joe Becerra contacted her and said, we are looking into the Kathy Durst case. Kathy's family and friends were stunned. The police went to the South Salem cottage and asked the new owner if they could come in. They looked into a closet and they took a shelf down and they started pulling things out and dug back to an area that she didn't even know existed in her house. The house had never been searched. Like what is wrong? Nobody go live in Westchester because these fucks (laughs) are stupid. The lake had never been searched. The land had never been searched. Nothing. And so then Janine Pirro, who is the former district attorney for Westchester County, seems like just, ugh, well, nobody cared. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, they're, how stupid, like, oh, someone's missing and you don't even go, like, look at the house. Even, like, just to say that you did it. But, like, I remember back in, like, when they first disappeared, like, the cops were like, eh, I'm sure she ran off. Like, they didn't even take anybody seriously, even when Durst called it in. But, so, yeah, the Westchester, anybody from Westchester, anytime they talk in this this whole series it just annoys the shit out of me because anything they have to say I'm like oh yeah you know what would have been great is if you had investigated it when it happened yeah the, the investigating wasn't so, too, too too no but then they want to run their mouths like oh we thought it was da 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 it's like no you thought nothing because you didn't bother investigating it so shut up or, like, I, I, at some point they say about what somebody else should have done, and it's like, you know what? Well, but, like, you know, they believed that she had left the house and was was in New York because that was, you know, her doorman saw her. She called into class the next day. So maybe, in their defense, maybe they didn't search the house because... They tr- they thought she was not there when she disappeared. Yeah, but like 
they took everything at Dirk's well, word for it. Well, the doorman said that he saw her come in. Yeah, but I feel like I've read somewhere, maybe it wasn't in this, that, like, whoever said that to the police, like, they couldn't find him again to, like, re-ask him. Did they say that on here? Or No, they did not say that on, on here. And, like, the whole thing, like, the call to her school, like, the, the, like, they talked to the school and the school's like, we never heard from her. He just said that, that he was like, that's how I, I thought that something was wrong because she wasn't going to school. The school called me and they're like, oh. no, no, never told him that, that they did say her. in, in, I think it was in this episode that the school did hear from someone, but there was it. I don't know. I see. I also read like different things. So let me just stick to my notes because me going yeah. off my notes, I'm getting like different. I don't. Who even knows what well, I'm we're, we're what I'm saying? Of ourselves, as I go. Yes. So, um, Drecky asks, um, Darce about when he found out that the case was being reopened. And Darce was like, "Well, it blew me away. Um, he had never heard the name Janine Piero before." What he was told about Piero was that she had some higher aspirations. She wants to run for something big statewide. He thought the whole thing was pointless. They had divers in the lake. They were taking down walls in the old cottage. He said that they never announced what they found. Cut to Drecky asking Detective Becerra what they found. And he smiles and says, nothing of evidentiary value. Piero was disappointed, but knew that there was something more going on. So, like, that's also annoying. Like, like it does seem like she was trying to make a name off something. Like, Piero bloody. was? Oh. Yeah, well, all of them. Like, okay, look, it's been, like, about 20 years. Like, did you, like, oh, because some random asshole in prison... Like, Durst has been out of prison this entire time. How the fuck would he know? Like, it's not like it's like a jailhouse snitch where it's like, oh, well, we were, like, cellmates mm-hmm. and he told me this. And then we meet Ed Murphy, who I really dislike this guy. Um, he is a senior investigator with the Westchester District Attorney's Office. And he also reminds <laughs> me of Wolford Brimley. They re-interviewed everyone who had originally been interviewed 20 years prior. Detective Becerra says Kathy's friends told him he should speak to Susan Berman. She was a close friend of Bobby Durst's from college. When Kathy went missing, she protected Bobby from the press. If anyone knew anything, it was Susan Berman. So we hear audio from, I think it's a deposition or, you know, it's, from a trial and Durst says he met Susan at UCLA his first summer there. They became best friends right away and she had lost both of her parents when she was young and so since Durst lost his mother when he was young, you know, they kind of had that in common and could bond over that. Um, Her background was rich Las Vegas mobster father and Susan had written a book called Easy Street, The True Story of a Mob Family. 
Um, we see Susan doing an interview on a talk show, um, and she found out that her father was a gangster when she was 21. A friend at UCLA um, named Jane, it wasn't Bob Durst, asked her if she had seen a certain crime book that had just come out. So she went and got the book. They described her father as someone who'd killed a man with one hand behind his back. Could you imagine finding out your dad was Oh my God, wouldn't that just traumatize you? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I could be 40. And I'd be like, well, what? It'd be like, uh, it'd be like that fucking dipshit in Blood Mm Dew. The only thing Emily is good for is bodily functions in this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) But, like, I don't know. He was a bank robber and tied into Murder Incorporated, according to Susan's cousin, Tom Patton. And I have to say, like, Murder Incorporated seems like a stupid name for a mob because... Do you know what I thought of? Do you remember, like, back, way back when we were kids? And I don't remember if it was on, Disney like, Nick or it, Disney, but there was Yes, like, it was on Disney. I loved that show. <laughs> Me, too. But that's the only thing I thought of when they were, you like, You know who used to be on there? Like, A.C. Slater, Furby. Yep. Yes, I loved mm-hmm. I, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt was on there. I loved that show. I could, I could sing you. Yeah the theme song if I didn't have a terrible voice <laughs> I know I loved it I, yeah but yeah that's all I thought of so um one of her friends Kim Lankford says Susan was very proud of her father Susan even had his mug shot framed in the living room like I feel like I feel like my really dad weird really well yeah I say that. I guess her dad was dead by then. Yeah, they never did say, but, like, how old she was when her parents died. And how did Yeah. Well, and I think that would suck if you found that out after your father had passed. So you came yeah. and asked questions about it. And I wouldn't even be like, why did you do it? But so what was it like? How many people did you kill? Like, Yeah, and she wrote this me. book. But, like, how, like, if she didn't know until after he died that he was a he was a gangster like what did she have to write about i bet she like i would imagine that it was something where she like wrote about the kind of father she thought he was and the stories like he would tell them and why she believed it and then have somebody else who had known him during that time like maybe say what's really going on um lydia ops says when susan met bob durst it was like here's a man as powerful as my father he's connected he has money he can always get out of trouble and he needs me they had a special friendship like why didn't they just marry each other like that seems i mean i i get that like men and women can be friends and it doesn't have to like be that but like they Mm -hmm. seem kind of perfect for each other um, one of the inept detectives says that the information that Kathy was seen by the doorman would not have been given out by police. That was from the Durst family. Bob Durst says, when Kathy disappeared, I saw the media was calling. He asked Susan to handle it for him. Susan took it upon herself to be his spokesperson. 
the doorman seeing Kathy and the call to her medical school that Monday likely never happened. Oh, mm-hmm. I guess that's where I got that from. That was likely Susan Berman spinning things um, to like make it look like she was there. The inept detective says, in their minds, Kathy made it to Manhattan, so with luck and a little bit of cutting, it slipped through. He got one past us, I guess. It's like, or you didn't, like, investigate, and you're a fucking shitty detective in a station full of shitty detectives. Like, why fucking be interviewed for this? You look like a fucking idiot. Like, it's so, like, you're a moron. It just, it's so annoying. It's like, oh, I guess he slipped. Like, oh, yeah, he really tricked you because you all did a bang-up job investigating it. Wilford Brimley, Ed Murphy, says, 30 years later, you realize anything Bob Durst says, you have to question. But we didn't think that back then. And I'm sorry. Like, if you're investigating someone's like missing disappeared whatever shouldn't you be questioning everybody like shouldn't you take everything everyone says with a grain of salt and then put it all together at the end like i I just it's stupid kevin hines the former assistant district attorney for westchester says the guts of their case was bob and kathy durst were married The marriage spun out of control and became increasingly volatile. They found out that she had asked him for a divorce and got herself a divorce attorney. The Thursday before she went missing, Kathy's attorney told her that Bob had turned down their request for an agreement on a divorce. And there's no credible evidence that Kathy ever left South Salem. Now, like, I wonder, like, if she took the train, like, wouldn't there be, like, a ticket? And wouldn't there be, like, a thing, like, she, like, turned the ticket in to get on the train? But I guess we don't get Well, there might not have been one with, like, her name on it. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of it more like if it was a plane ticket. Jarecki asked Bob Durst if he had anything to do with Kathy's death. Durst says, I don't know that she's dead. Jarecki asks if it's possible she's still alive. And Durst is like, it's possible, not likely. In other words, this guy gives zero fucks. He says, I think she's most definitely dead. Thank God. Jarecki, and I also cannot stand Andrew Jarecki. I don't, he just irks me and he looks like a washed up, like, wannabe Corey Feldman the way he dresses Ugh. Um, Jerky asks Durst if he had anything to do with her disappearance and Durst says no like didn't he just basically answer the same thing like two seconds ago he says I don't know what happened to her I didn't have anything to do with it other than having a bad marriage which was half my fault probably more but other than that, I had nothing to do with her disappearance. And I was like, uh, okay. But I guess what he's saying is like it's his fault she left because he wasn't a good husband. But he, he went a very like, I don't know, it just seemed weird to me the way he was saying things. Um, Ed Murphy says when 
Durst originally reported her missing, he didn't have the car with him. Maybe he was worried that they would want to search it. I said, whatever, these idiots probably wouldn't even have thought to ask. He thinks that Durst probably took Kathy and put her in the trunk of the car and got rid of her somewhere. And I wrote, this is very annoying listening to these dumbass cops. It's like the most like ridiculous <laughs> explanations. Hines said, we did some phone record sweeping. And I wrote, what year, sir? And we found that some of the phone records show that the Durst organization got collect calls from oh, ship bottom in Jersey. This made me kind of giggle team. about getting what? collect calls because I wanted to know before we even say anything, like, if Emily even knows what a collect call is. You do? Yeah, I do. What is it? So then we're like, you place a call, but like you have to like say your name and they have to, whoever you're calling has to accept whether or not they actually. Yeah, I did not think you'd. Yeah, I honestly did not think you'd know that just because it was so long ago. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Like, well, I remember in high school, I like when I needed a ride, I would call my house, and like I'd call collect, and then when it said like say your name, I'd be like, <laughs> "I'm done. Come get me," and hang up, and like, so my parents would never come get yeah, me. But collect calls have, have not been it. a thing in your lifetime, so so that's why I did not think that you would know what it was. Well, we were watching a movie the other day and someone <gasps> on a payphone and Daniel goes, what the hell was that? <laughs> oh, but so then they said they were able to track down that the calls, where the calls came from and it was a coin operated phone and a laundromat. And they like knew that Bob Durst made the calls because there were only two people who made collect calls to the Durst organization and it was Seymour Durst and Bob Durst. And Jarecki asks Bob about calling the office collect. He's like, yeah, I did that all the time. And Jarecki's like, why? And Bob's like, just as like, uh, yeah, let's I don't want to pay, for, pay it. for it. Let's see more pay for it. And I'm not sure why that question needed to be asked, but whatever. Like, I obviously, why does anybody pay for or like do a collect call? Because I'm not paying for it. <laughs> And Bob says he only called because Seymour wanted him to call. Um, Bob says he wasn't in ship bottom, so he didn't make those calls. He says he has no clue who made those calls. Jerky asks if anyone else ever made collect calls, and Durst is like, sure, somebody had a beach house and got the receptionist to accept calls. And I was like, okay, but why is this like some smoking gun? Like, I doubt anyone even searched there for one and for two it's not like you can tell who made the call it's just that two collect calls came in and it's 20 years later if you ask me if where i called from somewhere 20 years ago i'd be like you're i have no idea and like this is where i still think he's like a piece of shit i'm like i cannot believe how little this dude tries to make himself look innocent he's just like yeah whatever i don't know He's like, eh, about everything. Janine Pirro says they went digging for a body. Obviously, they found nothing. 
Durst is asked if he has any idea where her body is. Durst is like, I have no idea. Like, how is he going to answer that? Like, oh, well, yeah, it's actually over here. Wait, but I didn't kill her. Like, all right. He said, I wouldn't know how to begin. Wouldn't know if her body, if she was dead, I would not know. If her body would be in the state of New York or in the state of New Jersey or in the Northern Hemisphere or anything like that. And I said, he seems very bored talking about this. And also, he's I was trying his eyes to a like lot and very weirdly look for a pattern on the blinking because like anything that I thought like maybe he was lying about, I tried to see if he blinked weird. So then if there was anything that he could have been honest about, I tried to like pay attention to that. And I don't think that I ever like found a pattern in it. Yeah. yeah, he's definitely very uncomfortable. Yeah, but, but I, I did try to, like, pick up, why. like, that tick on him, like, because I noticed the weird blinking, and, uh, like, yes. when I first noticed it, it was on something that, I can't remember what it was, but it was something that I thought he was lying about, probably about Kathy, and, and so then I tried to pay attention to it, and it just, I did, I, I couldn't figure out a pattern on it, so I think he just has, like, a weird tick. I think he is a weird tick that it happens all the time. But I, I think so it too. gets worse when he's nervous. And but like it also seemed like to me, I thought it seemed like he didn't care. And I like I wrote down like fucking fake it like you care. I don't give a shit if Dan killed me with his bare hands and then chopped me up and threw the remains in a vat of battery acid. His ass better fake a few tears. Like, get the fuck for real. Like, why? Pretend. Yeah. Pretend like it's... you care. Like, if you, if you tell me. Maybe pretend, it's stop. just because it's stop been so whatever. long. I don't know. I don't know how much I want to, like, take up for him. But, like. <sighs> well, he does also have, like, a very flat affect where it's kind of like you don't see him. I think he's just so fucked up because of, like his childhood and seeing his mother die that like when other people die, it just doesn't affect him. And he's seen a lot of murder or death in his life. Not even murder, but yeah, that's true. Yeah. I didn't even like take it as I didn't even consider that about like seeing his mom die would make him like desensitized to death. Because you know they never got him therapy. And you know, like, like, I don't know. In my head, I feel like that dude, Seymour, did it for, like, the wrong, like, woke him up for, not that there would ever be a right reason, but, like, I think he probably didn't think that she was going to jump. I think he thought that she was faking, and so he got Durst up to be, like, Oh yeah, like I called your bluff and that or like maybe he thought that if she saw him she'd come back. No. I don't think that. No, it didn't sound like like his dad cared at all. Like I don't I mean, I guess I don't know. I only heard Robert Durst's side of the story, but like it did not seem like some frantic thing. It seemed like, oh, look. Because he's like, I didn't know she saw me or not. Because I would think 
her seeing Durst probably is what pushed her over if she wasn't dead set on killing herself. Like I would, I would, I would not be surprised if that was not the first time that she did that. And I don't, I don't think he was trying to call her bluff, but like, basically, like you're not just gonna keep doing this to me, like yeah, someone else. Why is would you know want your eight year old kind of thing to be the one who knew? Um. Yeah. No. I mean, I don't understand why he would do that. Like, I it doesn't make sense to me. But I think maybe he thought she would like. If anything, like, well, if the kid sees mm-hmm. her, then she'll she's gonna stop. But like, so I don't know if I'm giving him any kind of benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's that. Like, maybe she won't do this anymore if she sees him. But I think probably, yeah, you know, she obviously was mentally ill, and so, you know seeing him might have mm-hmm. been the thing of like oh now I can't come back from this either way it's like all wrong and very like disturbing to me that like you just stood there because it sounded like the maids or like yeah. the housekeeper didn't he say there was some staff there mm-hmm. that sounded like more upset than anybody yeah because they were like the ones who screamed when she felt when she fell and or jumped whatever she whatever she did oh yeah it's just ugh, it's disturbing I don't mm-hmm. know it's just very sad too but Heinz says, if you go to Ship Bottom and the a- area surrounding the Pine Barrens, now this is completely unrelated, but am I the only one that thinks this place sounds like a town in a Stephen King novel? You see ample, ample real estate where he could have dumped that body. It's like, duh, like you all are dumbasses that did next to nothing because you thought she ran away and believed whatever bullshit Bob Durst told you while blinking and twitching like 47 times so like they're just so annoying it's like oh he could have done all of this it's like oh yeah 20 (laughs) years later this is all you've come up with like fucking idiots he continues saying it's actually a place where mob bosses used to order their bodies that bodies be dumped and what connection is that Susan Berman like I'm just guessing, but I feel like this may maybe should have been looked into in 1982 <laughs> instead of 20 goddamn years later. Ugh. Like, the police are so fucking worthless. Heinz said Susan and Bob were very close, and Susan had a lot of connections in organized crime. I said, again, information <laughs> that would have been useful in 1982. Susan is described as somebody who would have done anything for her friends. She was very loyal. Jarecki asked Durst what his relationship with Susan was like. He says the first several years after Kathy vanished, Susan was living in New York. They saw each other frequently in New York. I said, now this is my first time watching the jinx, so this may be answered later, but do you think that they were fucking? Ooh, that's a good question. 
And then she moved to Los Angeles. Um, Straw says she went online to trace Susan Berman. She was traced from Beekman Place all the way out to Benedict Canyon, California. She gave the police the map to her door and said, Whatever you do, interview this woman. She knows more than she's saying. She's a good friend of Bob's. Maybe she won't tell you anything, but maybe she will. Um, Julie Smith says she had a conversation with Susan, and she said, Susan, did you see the piece in the New York Times about Kathy Durst's case being reopened? Susan said, Julie, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to talk about that. They're out to get Bobby. If she had ties to organized crime, why would she even entertain talking about it? I'm sure she grew <laughs> up hearing stories about snitches get stitches. But then I remembered, like, she didn't find out. So maybe she didn't. I don't know. But I still feel like her dad is probably like, Stop, don't tell, like, tell on people. Jerky asks if Durst had contact with Susan then and what did she say? Durst says she wrote, oh, Bobby, this is terrible for you. I hate that you have to go through this. She told Durst the Los Angeles police contacted her and that they wanted to talk to her about Kathy Durst's disappearance. Like, you know, if someone wants to come and talk to me about something that happened 20 years ago, you know what their answer is going to be? Like, I don't fucking know. Like, I don't remember 20 years ago. I barely remember why I walk in the kitchen. Jackie seems sort of annoyed. But... I could see Durst being annoying to be interviewed because he will like he will ask to talk to her and Durst is like yes and it's like okay what did she say she said hello what did she say after that like that's how well because he has to be very vague and calculated in his answers Well, right. Well, he talks like somebody that has been very well trained Mm -hmm. in having to testify in court cases because that's basically they're like, don't Mm -hmm. say anything that is not the question. Yep. Answer the question and stop talking. Um, But it also seemed like Jarecki is prompting Durst. And I I wrote, dumbass Durst goes, oh. Not long after that, Susan Berman was murdered. I was like, geez. He answers everything in a very weird tone. Like, he he says things like he overlooks some minor detail, like, oh yeah, they were supposed to put cheese on that, but they didn't. He's like, oh yeah, and then she was murdered. Like, it's just very weird. He's like, she was murdered around Christmas of 2000. Again, in a tone of like, Oh, yeah, I got my dog around Christmas of 2000. He also kind of reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen that Foxcatcher documentary, but um, I've not he reminds seen me that. of John, du- John DuPont from that. I'm sorry, but. Oh, it's a good one. It's, it's, oh. very, I think it's on Netflix. It's very weird. It's like this guy, same thing, like he comes from this big family of money i think it's all in pennsylvania but then he gets into like competitive wrestling like olympic wrestling like he's not any good at it but he builds this Mm -hmm. compound for wrestlers to come live and train and then he just goes insane um but for some they remind me of each other a lot um 
then we see shots of Los Angeles. Um, Sarek Kaufman is asked about the last time that he saw Susan. He said he was going to Europe for about three weeks for holiday and he had no parking in his neighborhood. So I parked my car in the garage and Susan kept her car here. I was like, not sure what he's talking about because <laughs> like, where's here? As we hung out and exchanged gifts and cards and well wishes. Oh, he said, and we hung out and exchanged gifts and cards and well wishes. And then the taxi came and we said, I love you. And I got in the taxi and left. Jerecki asks him when he first met Susan Berman and when did she become a part of his life? He met her at 13. She had started dating my father. They moved in with her about a year into dating. Mella Kaufman says, because of how light, happy, joyous, quick, brilliant, aware she was, daily life was fascinating and fun. She laughed a lot and frivolously spent a lot. Everything could be turned into a story. The children chose Susan even over their father. Susan was normally very punctual, especially about family get-togethers. Her cousin, Denny Marcus, says she called Susan because she was a half hour late for dinner. She started leaving a message for Susan and a man picked up. He identified himself as a detective from the LA, de LA police department on December 24th, 2000 West Los Angeles patrol officers responded to a radio call open door at five two or one five two seven Benedict Canyon drive. Officers entered the residence through the open door in the rear of the house. The officers discovered the victim's body and I wrote, oh, there are pics. Um, but they say her body was supine, which means laying, on the floor of a bedroom. The victim had sustained a gunshot wound to the head. Paramedic pronounced death at um, 1.48 a. Or p.m. Detective Paul Coulter with the Los Angeles Police Department says, the home was pretty barren. No carpet, no heat on. Front door was locked with deadbolts. No sign of a forced entry. It would appear that whoever the killer was had been let in by Susan. Or they came in the back. Cause yeah, but that could have been where the person like, left. Unlocked and open. Well, I'm sure it is. But, I mean, it, there definitely is no sign of a forced entry. But, like... I don't. But it didn't, they didn't make it sound like, um, like there was any type of like, um, oh, what's the right wording I'm looking for? Yes. Yes. Like there was no struggle, like struggle or, you know, or they or did like, say that nothing yeah. was stolen, nothing was moved. Um, so I think that is, is also another determining factor in, in, in um, the fact that they thought that it was someone she let in the house. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm probably just very annoyed by some of these <laughs> cops that I'm just like, ugh, whatever, you're dumb about everything. Janine Piero says that when she heard Susan Berman had been murdered, the first person she thought of was Robert Durst because they were about to speak with her. She had been killed execution style. Jarecki asked Durst how he reacted when he heard about Susan's murder. Durst is like, I felt terrible for Susan. I was astonished that they were putting all this together that I did it or I caused it to be done. 
What did you say? Um, not I miss my friend. Well, and he really <laughs> had like no emotion like, to the odd. fact that his best friend was killed. Yeah, yeah, but then again, like you said, it probably goes back to like his mom, like because I also get the impression that his dad was not a lot like a touchy feely. Let's talk about our feelings type person. So it's probably like yeah, compartmentalize that shit quick. Um, yeah I mean I did think it was weird too because I I wrote I mean people have told me that their pet died that I didn't mm-hmm. even know they had a pet and I mustered up more sympathy than this psycho Jarky asked Durst if he had anything to do with Susan's death Durst closes his eyes and says I had nothing to do with Susan Berman's death he also didn't have a theory about what happened to Susan. Darst says he understood why his name was brought up because she was his spokesperson. Then all of a sudden she's dead after Janine Pirro's doing the investigation of me. Which, like, this is another thing. Why is he even doing the jinx? Because, like, up to this point, he's gotten out of so much. And I feel like, like... You're just asking for them to keep looking at things the more you bring yourself in the media. Like, I'd have been gone yeah. out of the States yeah. and never coming back and never speaking about it again. And I said, now, I don't know what happened. And maybe we will find out later. But I didn't really get the impression that he would have killed her just because they were reinvestigating what happened to Kathy Durst. Which I still believe that I think because they say she had like money problems and stuff. So I bet she kind of like, I don't know if she flat out like threatened him, but like it would, I could imagine it being something like, oh, I need a hundred thousand dollars pushing back. And it's like, yeah, I still have to talk to the police where it's like, you're not outright threatening him, but enough that he can take that as a threat. Like I don't get my money. Like I'm talking. Um, Susan Berman wrote about mobsters and she was the daughter of a mobster and news report or news reports were speculating that it was a mob style hit. So Robert Durst was not a suspect. Um, and then one of the dipshits in, you know, Westchester says we were surprised that Robert Durst wasn't a suspect. Like, oh, you were. You were surprised. Oh, really? Like when he was the suspect of somebody that never came back? Uh, you didn't <laughs> investigate that, but now you're shocked. Ugh. The LAPD was looking at mob connections of that murder. Um, like, just, ugh. I wrote, have a seat, buddy. At least Durst not being a suspect made some sense in that case. Like, you all fucked up when you could have held him accountable. <laughs> When all the signs actually pointed to him. So shut the fuck up. When Susan Burr. And that's the other thing that's like frustrating. It's like had you just investigated that first investigation. Like other people would not have died. When Susan Berman was killed. She had been in talks and working on television projects. About the mob days in Las Vegas when she was killed. Her friend said she was working on something big at that time. Something big was going on and happening. Being shot in the back of the head was traditional and mob killings. Like, I honestly would have thought that it was more likely that she had been talking 
and somebody from one of these families or one of these like mob things were like, okay, you need to shut up before you start putting all our business out there. But I mean, that's just how I would have taken it at first. Um, The Beverly Hills Police Department received a letter in the mail. The envelope was addressed, Beverly Hills Police. The note read, 1527 Benedict Canyon, Cadaver. The letter was postmarked the day before the discovery of the victim's body. Um, The guy relaying this story, I said I didn't catch his name and I don't care to try to figure it out. But he says that the note is significant. It's significant because the person intended for the body to be found so it's not sitting there decomposing and rotting away. He said it's obviously somebody who cares about her. So they eliminated the mafia from being a Well, and one thing I wrote down was where was Robert when she was murdered? No one ever said that. He was in California, but he said he was up in, like, Trinidad, California. I don't know if we find that out in this episode, though. I just said that as an answer to your question. I said, uh, now that I said that, I said, I don't know that we Uh, find that out. Yeah, because I didn't think in this episode they ever said, like, where he was when she was murdered. I think it was alluded to at some point that he was in L.A., but... I don't think like Robert never said, well, I was in New York or I was here when she was murdered. So it wasn't me. So like I, that's where I got confused. Yeah. Jarecki shows Durst the note and asks him what he thinks of the note. Jarecki is like, it's her address and block lettering. So somebody was hiding their signature. And they spelled Beverly wrong. He seems very bored by all this. And like, um, how is block lettering hiding someone's signature? Mm-hmm. You can still tell what someone's handwriting looks like if they're writing block letters. Um, and Jerky is like, keeps asking, like, mm-hmm. why would somebody write a note like that? And Durst is like, I have no fucking clue. Jarecki says there's speculation that if it was somebody that liked her, they wouldn't want her lying around in her house. You know, if she had to die, she shouldn't die. And Durst interrupts. He's like, if somebody liked her, why kill her? And now you're taking this big risk? Jarecki is like, which big risk? Durst says, you're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. I have to Mm -hmm. say, Durst does not strike me as being super sentimental. Seems very like it is what it is. And like, could you imagine like it comes out that he did it and he's like, <laughs> Well, if somebody liked her, why kill her? <laughs> like, that's awful. That's gonna be played at your trial, sir. Like the police had retrieved Susan's computer hard drive. There was a ledger of names of people that had sent her money. She had been reaching out to people for money, she had been having money problems. She was months behind in her rent. She was counting on these movie deals coming through and like book deals, but I don't think like she was like, I don't think she was getting offers like she expected. And I actually don't even know like how it said like something big was happening in her life. Like she was about to sign on for this or that. Like, I think that's just, she probably just always told people that. And then Mm -hmm. later like, Oh, it fell through, but I have another 
person that's interested. Um, one of her friends said Susan could manipulate for sure. She was a good manipulator. She had received a couple of checks from Bobby Durst. Her friends could see her kind of blackmailing Durst. Like, yikes. But you would think if you knew that somebody killed their wife, like, mm-hmm. that's your wife. Like, they're not going to kill you? Jarecki asked Durst if he was nervous about anything Susan could or would say to the police. Durst is like, well, there were plenty of private things, but nothing about Kathy, which I thought was a very weird way of answering it. And he says, I mean, when Kathy was going bananas, we would talk about Kathy all the time. I couldn't imagine her talking to the police about that. It was like, if the police want to talk to me, I'm just going to talk to them. Is that all right? That was the conversation. Do whatever you want. We hear the audio recording of Susan's memorial. Her son says, my name is Sereb Kaufman. Susan Berman was my mother. There's just one request that I would like to make, which is that we keep in mind and try not to dwell too much on the sadness of these events. You know, I actually want to know, like, why, like, what happened between Susan and his dad? And, like, why? Yeah, why did kids choose to live with her her after they split but Mm mm-hmm yeah that's what I want to know I don't understand Darst did not attend the memorial service he was believed to have been in LA at the time he reached out but to Susan's friend who found the call a bit a bit threatening she says he said well I and then she's like, well, I don't really know what he said, what the reason for was the call. It could have been something like, you know, just checking in with you never interested me for one second. And I was like, that tells us absolutely nothing. It was a waste of time. Another friend is like, of course, Bobby called. Why wouldn't he? He was her best friend or one of her best friends. And we commiserated with that. He was trying to make allies in Susan's camp. Jarecki asks her son, Sareb, about his conversations with Durst after her murder. He says it was shortly after. He can't remember if he called Durst or Durst called him. Sareb says he was obviously very sympathetic and sad to hear about it and asked what he could do. Around that time, people were starting to talk about him as a suspect. It never made sense to Sareb, not for one second. One of the friends said Sarab and Bobby became really close after Susan died, which was a problem because the rest of us felt like we were living in different realities. Sarab understood why he would be looked at, but didn't believe that he did anything to Susan. Like, I don't know, like, that, that's another thing. Why is everybody, like, jumping to the conclusion that Durst did it? Like, that seems weird to me. Like, I would think most of our friends would have been like, why? I think everyone yeah, jumped on him because they all thought that, that he would he, do that. he killed his wife, and if he could kill his wife, why wouldn't he kill her too? I guess that's true. I don't know. Susan's friend is like, I could see why Sarab would have wanted to be friends <laughs> with this millionaire after his mother figure died. Like, geez, lady. Like, that's really nice. Jarecki flat out, flat out asks if Bobby gave him money after Susan died. 
Shreb kind of stutters and is like, it came up that I hadn't gone to college and he asked how much would he need. And Shreb is like, I told him about 200000 It was a little padded, but not by much. Tuition, living, needing to focus. They did not meet up again because after that, Durst was on the run for murder and dismemberment of a body. Like, jeez. We hear news reports saying Galveston police are convinced that 58-year-old Robert Durst is responsible for killing and dismembering his 71-year-old neighbor, Morris Black. And then he threw his body parts into the Galveston Bay. Durst says, I spent one night in prison. I've been told by the detective that you've been charged with murder. Bail has been set at 250000 And I didn't think that when you were charged with murder. I mean... I didn't know nothing, but you can't can't give someone charged with murder a bail because they're going to run away, of course. Like, what? Jarecki is like, was it your intention to run away when you put up the $250,000? And Darcy is like, goodbye. $250,000? Goodbye, jail. I'm gone. Like, why does Jarecki ask the dumbest fucking questions? Like, I think he just said... Um, they gave me bail, so I ran. Another news report says Manhattan real estate heir Robert Durst is back in custody, busted while trying to shoplift a $6 chicken salad sandwich <laughs> at a Pennsylvania market. Like, what a fucking idiot. Durst is like, I went into the Wegmans to do grocery shopping and get the newspaper. I don't know what gave me the idea that I should shoplift. To see if I could get away with it or whatever it was. But I decided rather than pay, I was just going to, I was going to take it. As I was leaving, the two security people out front and they had said they have to talk to me. And they said, we're sorry, you'll have to come with us. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, idiotically, I went with them and I was arrested. Like, you fucking idiot. Like, you could have eaten it throughout the store and probably not get caught. Another news report says that Durst was wanted for murder in Galveston, Texas, and he's a suspect for murders in Los Angeles and Westchester County, New York. <laughs> Jarecki asks him, why were you bald? And I started laughing. <laughs> Durst is like, I was on the lam. I was trying to disguise myself, and that worked real good. Jarecki asks, did you shave your eyebrows? And Durst said everything. And Jarecki Jarecki's like, why? Durst says, it looks less like me. You look like a weird, you look weird with your eyebrows shaved in addition to your head. And it's like such a stupid thing. Like, why are you still talking to him about it? It's so stupid. Like, could you imagine, like, looking at like, well, why did you shave your eyebrows? Obviously, I'm insane, okay? That's why normal people don't shave their eyebrows. Like, I'm like, and Jarecki's like, and that was intentional? And Darce goes, yeah, how do you accidentally shave your eyebrows? Like, he's so stupid. I think that's probably where I started liking him again. I was like, okay. Like, what? Like, what? Was that intentional? Why would that even matter? 
of all the things that you have to talk to this man about. Like, that was the end of episode right? Like, oh my god, Andrew Jarecki is so stupid. Like, I never, I, I could never be a reporter the amount that I would laugh at people. Oh my god, he's so stupid. And that was intentional, like, you fucking idiot. Durst is like, yeah, dumbass. <laughs> like, who else? Yeah. Oh, God. Moving on to episode four, and that's um, the state of Texas versus Robert versus Robert Durst. This one I had a lot more notes on, but the end of episode three is probably my favorite <laughs> part of the whole series. That's the most stupid fucking eyebrows. Um, someone with a Galveston police shirt and a flashlight is walking around what appears to be an abandoned prison. The guy says, we kept Durst down here and describes how the cell was laid out. Um, Durst says, look, why are they showing, like, I feel like Jarecki, this really could have been like a (laughs) two-part documentary. He's like, nope, six episodes, I'm going to stretch it out. And Jer says, in prison, you're not going to get a whole bunch of rich people in there. I mean, most people in prison are from lower, lower income families and not educated. I got along with those people well. They all treated me with enormous respect. It was Mr. Bob in prison. What they accomplished in their lives, whatever it might have been, they accomplished on their own. I'll never do anything on my own. It'll always be this thing or all this money or whatever it is. No matter what I do in my life, I will have started out rich. And, you know, I bet, like, for Robert Durst, like, he probably never knew if people yeah. liked him or liked his money. Because he's, like, kind of odd. Yeah. And so I feel like that made me sad for him a little bit. But then we see the news report. And it says, six-year-old Robert Durst is charged with the gruesome death of his neighbor two years ago. Texas authorities aren't the only ones interested in Durst. In New York, police continued to investigate the 1982 disappearance of his first wife, Kathleen. Police in Los Angeles also want to talk to him about the unsolved murder of his friend, Susan Berman. Um, Detective Coulter from Los Angeles Police says, I got a case, but I can't prove it quite yet. (laughs) Do you really have a case that I'm like, I'm pretty sure the case is when you can prove it. Um, he said, and for New York, they got a case, but they ain't got a body. But to us, it was Galveston had the best of all cases. Um, I wrote, he's about to, he looks like he's about to choke. His tie is so tight. Like, did you notice no, that? Notice How that. tight this guy's tie was? Like, he looked like he was about to be strangled. And then I wrote, his hair is white and his mustache is black, if that paints any kind of a picture for you. He looked odd. Janine Pirro, who seems like Robert Durst is the fucking bane of her existence. Like, Is I she, like, she famous for something? Like, like, is she on TV? Do you know what else Robert Durst did that bothered me? I thought I'd, like, at least seen her on something before. I mean, I'd never heard of her. I feel I'm, like she would I'm be sure friends with like Nancy Grace. In, like oxygen shows and stuff. 
for sure. She says, Robert Durst is charged in Texas with the death of Morris Black, not only murdering him, but dismembering him and throwing body parts in the Galveston Bay. They had the evidence. The conviction would be gotten in Texas. Durst dismembered the body, put it in garbage bags, and threw it in the river. It would seem to be a home run for the prosecution. <laughs> like, I, just, like I, I really just hate everybody in Westchester. Detective Cody Cazales says, Nobody deserves to be killed and their head cut off, their arms cut off, their legs cut off, and packaged up like garbage. The evidence, the totality of the circumstances of this case pointed us to one charge and one charge only, and that was murder. I actually liked um, Cody Cazales. I felt really bad for him because it seemed like he, like, really cared. I don't know. It just... Compared to all the other cops that talk on this, like, he just seemed like he actually had a heart. But, so there's a news report, and it says, Legendary Texas lawyer Dick DeGuerin heads the billionaire's high-powered defense (laughs) team. Of course, he walks into the courthouse in a cowboy hat. Dick DeGuerin says that he always gets nervous before a trial. I always worry that maybe there's something I should have done that I didn't do, and often I'm right about that. Michael Ramsey, another attorney for Darsh, says, There were moments where you kind of gagged on what you had gotten yourself into. We got a guy cut up in 20 different pieces, thrown in a bag, and they're expecting us to win this case. Um. So then we hear another news report that says eccentric New York real estate, an eccentric New York real estate heir is on trial in Texas. Judge Susan Chris says we were getting requests from so many media outlets across the country, people magazine and the New York papers and television stations. And of course you have your local media, you have your TV stations from Houston. So everybody just saw it as a big story. Um, Eleanor Schwank a friend of Kathy says that on some level, she felt bad for Bob. He looked at her and gave her a little smile. It wasn't a malicious, ha ha, I'm going to get you next smile. It was just kind of this little smile of recognition. And she says, I never forgave him for murdering Kathy. And I said, well, that's good. Like Jesus (laughs) Christ, I would hope that it would take more than a small smile in a courtroom to forgive him. But it was just some element of feeling sorry for him. His life just unraveled to a pitiful degree. And like on one hand, it's like, well, that would be the least of what he deserves if he killed someone. But like the same time, like, I guess that's how I feel about him. It's like you go from being like you're this dumb fucking idiot to like, oh, God, I feel sad for you. So the opening remarks from the prosecution were... The burden of proof is on the state to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that Robert Durst intentionally shot and killed Morris Black. Then he shows pictures of Morris Black's dismembered body. They describe how he had to cut through skin, muscle, and tissue to be able to saw through the bones. And I was like, oh, I got my stomach hurts. And they talk about like how he had to flip the body to get around to the other side as well. And cut off limbs and his head to try to get away with murder. Like, geez, that's so rough. Chris Lavelle was 
one of the jurors. He said that he had never experienced anything like that before, and it was very shocking. Um, Another juror, Joanne Gungora, said at the beginning, her gut said it was a murder because he had to get rid of the evidence by cutting him up and throwing him in the gulf. Kevin Hines, who is part of Westchester's crack team, says he was watching back in New York, wondering what his defense was going to be. And I wrote, I'm very annoyed because he wouldn't have had the chance to kill Morris Black if Westchester wasn't so fucking incompetent. He said, people said it doesn't matter what his defense is because he's guilty and they're going to find him guilty because he cut the body up and therefore he's going to be found guilty. And I wrote, tell that to Casey Anthony, who didn't even report her kid missing for a month. And her own mother called the cops because Casey's car smelled like it had a dead body in it and she's still on the streets. And Kevin says he would say this guy has unlimited resources. He's got a very smart lawyer. It's a publicity case. He's going to have some sort of a defense. So Dick DeGuerin is holding up a picture. He says, Bob has feelings. This is his first girlfriend. He'd been carrying that picture with him. He had it when he was arrested. That's his pictures of his wedding, of him and Kathy. And then when he was arrested, He had them when he was arrested. And then there's a picture of Bob as a young boy. He had that when he was arrested. And I said, "Um, isn't he currently married? Where were her pictures? Mike Ramsey says, when I first met Bob, he was not loud. He was not even terribly responsive, but he had an intelligence. He had some wit to him. He's disheveled. He's been through the mill. He's been held in circumstances in which he's never been. But you have to look past that and see this lump of clay here that I'm going to have to mold. Is it got the capacity to be molded into a shape that I want it to be in by the time we get to a jury? I thought he was going to make a pretty good defendant. That is fascinating to me. I could ask attorneys questions for days. Like, Really, how do you, like, go about making somebody, like, sympathetic? Like, it's just, I wouldn't even know how to, where to start. Bob Durst is called as a witness. And I'm just going to write out, like, the questions and the answers. But, so the first question is, Mr. Durst, something happened on October the 31st of the year 2000 that turned your world upside down. And his answer was, I learned that New York City tabloids were going to do a news story about Kathy Durst, about the disappearance of Kathy Durst. And so the question was, so what did you want to do? And Durst's answer was, it seems to me the big problem was Robert Durst. I wanted to not be Robert Durst. The judge breaks in to say they had to explain why he was on the run. He was on the run before he killed Morris Black. He was hiding out. He's wearing a disguise. Um, I wrote side note. The judge's teeth oh all God. seem all shoved in her mouth and jammed together. She needs to fix that. I did notice it <laughs> one time. <laughs> it was distracting to me. <laughs> he is living this bizarre lifestyle. So the question was, what did you intend to do? He said, I intended to go to Galveston and disguise myself and never use the name Robert Durst again. Um, A a reporter says that people go to Galveston to get lost. 
So the question was, what did you learn about this story and who was pushing it? And he said, Janine Pirro was going to use a new investigation of Robert Durst to further her career. DeGuerin says that Janine Pirro ran him out of New York. Bob was driven from New York by a politically ambitious woman who wanted to further her own ambition at Bob Durst's expense with no evidence. I wrote, Janine Pirro is probably pissed, probably in part because at least part of it is true. And then Janine says to Garen down there is making me the focus that no one focuses on what Robert Durst did. I don't understand that like people that that like do that shit where they talk about people in the media and then they're like shocked that the people ran away from them. It's like, okay, like you already were telling everybody about this before you even spoke to him. Another one of Durst's attorneys, Chip Lewis, says, It was very easy for us to make her the enemy. We kind of created this mythical character in Janine Pirro, and we took liberty with how directly she was involved with the pursuit of Bob. (laughs) And I wrote, "Um, I feel like you could probably get in trouble for statements like that as an attorney. The attorneys continue in court, and until you've seen your picture on the front page of the newspaper being accused of having something to do with the disappearance of a loved one, you don't know what that feels like. If Miss Piero kept her mouth shut, none of this would have happened. All right, well, 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 that's a strong statement. I didn't quite follow what he was saying because I'm pretty sure it's not all on her and that he killed somebody because she reopened an old ass investigation. Like, but whatever. I mean, I guess they gotta, they've gotta make Yeah, it. they gotta put the blame on somebody. Like, I mean, they don't really have much else to work with. So Janine Pierre does not disappoint. She's like, are you kidding me? I've heard the devil made me do it. I've (laughs) never heard the DA made me do it. She definitely rehearsed that. And she seemed super proud of it. Like, she's like someone who thinks they just told a joke that was going to kill and they're smiling and then, like, nobody laughs and you're like, oh, shit. Chip Lewis is like, the jury ate it up. I mean, I probably would have gone with, he's very fucked up and mentally unwell because he watched his mother jump to her death when he was eight. But, I mean, that's probably why I'm a stay-at-home mom and not making a shitload of money as a defense attorney. Joanne Kangora says, well, it kind of made sense a little bit when we were told that, you know, he was trying to get out of New York because Janine Pierre was after him. I think that she was really out to get him and with having the pressure on, you know, he wanted to get away and, you know, I can't fault him for that. Drink every time she says, you know. So they ask, what did you decide to do? And Durst says, I decided I would disguise myself as a woman, buy a wig like that. And somewhere, did you buy a dress? And he says, no. Durst is now talking to Jarecki says it was the only disguise I could think of. I'm a guy. And what is a guy going to do? I mean, I could grow a beard and a mustache and I'd periodically worn a beard and a mustache in New York city, but I can't grow a beard and a mustache now. Can't do it by tomorrow morning. I would have to get some kind of a thing to put on my face. And I couldn't imagine that any of that would look would act vaguely real I just came up with the idea of a wig and then since I'm going to be a woman I've got to be mute because I cannot sound the way a woman sounds Jarecki is like um, in 
in retrospect now, what do you think? And Durst's like, that was a great disguise. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> weird. He was, he's like, Arama, that was an excellent idea, okay? Um, he said he went to Walmart and bought a woman's white blouse and a woman's handbag. And then people in the court start laughing. Like, can you even imagine? Like, you're like at a murder trial. People are like dying laughing. The district attorney was like, oh my God, did they just laugh at this man? Like, it was a defining moment for me. I felt like, oh my goodness, if they, the defense team, had set out to humanize him in some way after he dismembered Morris Black murdered him and ran with his ID and did everything he had done, they were looking like they were being very successful at it. It's kind of like the same thing as like, <laughs> you know, like when your kid gets in trouble, but then if you start laughing, it's like, oh, fuck, now I can't punish you. So they keep questioning him. They're like, you're now living in this apartment in Galveston. Did you meet Morris Black? And... Darson's like, I was going out just as a mute woman and a man came out of the door to the apartment across the hall. He said that I should not leave the hall light on because the hall light was on his electric meter. I guess I just nodded and left. Detective Cody says no one really knew much about the Morris. No one really knew much about Morris Black because he was a loner. Every time I say the word cantankerous and grumpy, I see Morris's face. So this guy doesn't seem like he was nice. Charles Bagley says, there was a guy that lived in the house next door that used to sit on the porch and smoke his cigarettes. And Morris Black would walk down the street and yell at him for smoking on his porch. So in the days that we used to come, what sort of relationship developed between you and Morris? And Durst says, we became good friends. And I was like, wait, what? Like, that's not where I thought we were going. Ramsey said, if it wasn't such a tragic situation, it would be kind of an amusing one. Morris out front, out in front like a terrier dog, biting and snipping at various people, and Bob walking behind, mimics smoking weed, and generally a little toked up kind of cooling things down. It's a very odd couple. It's a very odd situation. So... I guess, I mean, they would, like, watch TV and, like, go out to coffee. And I guess he just kind of dropped the whole, like, I'm a woman thing. Jarecki asked if Morph was like, hey, for the last couple of weeks, you've been writing me notes and wearing a wig. Now you're not writing notes. And Durr says, well, we became friendlier as time went on in the following months. He asked about why did you wear a wig? Why did you rent the apartment as Dorothy Siner? And I told him I wanted to disappear and hide. And I think I'm hiding. I don't find anybody recognizing me. Um, so he was asked if Morris judged him in yeah, any way. Like, and Durst was like, no. Like, I feel like if, said, yeah, yeah, I if Morris Black is ago. such an asshole that he would yell at people for smoking on their own front porch, that he would probably pass judgment on someone dressing as a woman. Yeah, that's why I kind of, like, I was like, that's weird. Um, he says, he didn't say that he changed his name or he dressed like a woman, but when I said I didn't want to be Robert <laughs> Durst anymore, he said, yeah, I went through that. And I wrote, what in the actual fuck? I was waiting for it to be like, he was trying to kiss, mm -hmm. like, Durst or something. Like, he was some huge piece of shit yeah. complaining about everything. 
basically anything other than yeah we became good friends and so he's asked if he owned guns and yeah he did and you know they both were familiar with guns and part of the defense was the famous he had it coming defense with where Morris Black was such a bad guy in so many ways and so crazy um, in so many different ways that could be proven and so I guess on Monday, September the 17th, um, Morris Black showed Darst an eviction notice, and he could tell he was very upset about it. Um, and I had gone into the bathroom, and I heard a gunshot. And then they're like, a gunshot? All right. And then what did you see? And he says, I saw Morris standing there, and I said, put the gun down. Put the gun down. Did you shoot the gun? Put the gun down. He pointed up to the archway to the kitchen and said that he... <laughs> had just shot at the eviction notice like who shoots at a piece of paper um so he's asked what he said to him and Dar says i said i want you to get out of here i don't want you in here and they're like did you make it clear he wasn't ever to come back there and he's like oh i made it very clear so basically it's like okay well i told him not to come in and then he came in and we're in texas so we can do um i don't want any um we can do mm-hmm. like what is it stand your ground law whatever like you can shoot someone for like breaking into your house and so um ramsey says what we're dealing with is an unpredictable and violent man one given to fits of rage one given to bizarre conduct that's the reason he comes in we're not here to black in the name of a dead man. There's an old joke in Texas. They hang horses, thieves, and let murders go. That's because they don't have any horses that need stealing. But what we do, but we do have some people that need killing. Because that's a weird thing to say. Um, so, like, basically, like, a week later, he came in and he noticed that his TV was on and Morris was at the table and he was pissed off at Bob. So they have Bob reenact what happened. And basically, they fought over the gun and Morris accidentally gets shot, like big shock. DeGaren says, what if it was you and you came to your house, your apartment, your home, and you found Morris Black in there without your permission? And you knew what we all know now about Morris Black. And Morris Black went for a gun. Would you be reasonable in being in fear? Would you be reasonable in coming to your own defense? Durst says, in the state of Texas, you find somebody in your house who's not supposed to be there. There's not much you cannot do to him. Most other states, which are obligated to do is call the police, do something else. You're obligated to leave. Texas, you're not obligated to leave. You can handle it more or less as you see fit. Stand your ground law. Obviously, you're not supposed to kill them. Lewis says, we always had to keep Bob on message. You were afraid of him. You were afraid of what he'd do, and you knew how to get hands on that gun, or something could happen to you. So they continued going over how the gun accidentally went off or whatever. The district attorney is doing variations of how the struggle for the gun was, and having Durst confirm how things were happening. Um... Durst says, well, I can't say. You two look like spaghetti in kind of like a teasing tone. And the DA was like, 
Mr. Morris looked like bloody spaghetti, right? And I was like, oh, that's like a weird like move. I can't imagine you look great saying that. Durst, who has zero emotion that I can detect, answers all serious, like, no. He didn't look like bloody spaghetti. Like, yikes. God, it's so awkward. Um, so basically, like, Durst said they were friendly. No one ever saw him around town. You know, like, they, I don't know. He just makes stuff up. And, you know, Morris after he told him who he really was, obviously knew he had money. And Casala says that Morris Black would go to the library to use the internet for free. I think he discovered Durst's name and his family background and all their money. At some point, Morris Black told Durst, if you don't help me, I'm going yeah. to tell New York where you're at. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's that. what got him killed, which is probably true. The- so they showed Lewis in court and he's saying there's no charge of dismemberment of the corpse. And I actually wondered, like, why didn't they, why did they only charge him with murder? Why didn't they charge him with, like, isn't it, it's like something like doing something to a body. I don't know the exact charge, but like. Sometimes with a lot of these court cases where people get away with it, when you know they are clearly guilty, is they charge them with the wrong thing. Yeah. Because I feel like had they charged him with both. Then maybe he wouldn't have got, like, maybe they would have given him the self-defense or whatever, but he would have been held accountable for the body dismemberment. Plus, they wouldn't, his attorneys, like, I feel like it would be harder for them to have gone in, like, arguing about that part of it. Yeah. But. Well, there's only two people who know what really happened, and one of them said, oh, there's not another side to hear. Yeah. Um, and he keeps saying, he said, there's no charge of destruction of evidence, nothing that the state keeps trying to focus you on. They have to focus you on that because how Morris Black died, self-defense, an accident is not murder, and they woefully felt failed to meet their burden. Um, Kazala says, their plea that they came up with, accidental and self-defense, was brilliant because if it's two people in a room, how do you disprove self-defense? DeGuerin says, there was a moment in my cross-examination of Cody Casales that I thought was extremely important. And to his credit, he answered honestly. Um, so he asks him, you know that it's the prosecution's burden once self-defense is raised to disprove self-defense, don't you? And he answers, yes, sir. And he said, and you found no evidence that would disprove self-defense, did you? And he wrote, no, sir. And they show his face on the stand and he looked devastated. I like felt really bad for him because like he has to answer honestly, but like, you know, you're basically like giving this guy an out too. Mm-hmm. And of course, like his attorneys bring that up, like every single chance they talk from that moment forward. And he says, Sergeant Casales told you the truth. That man told you that the state of Texas, or that man told you what the state of Texas doesn't want to talk about. Their burden to disprove beyond all reasonable doubt, according to their lead detective, they can't meet it. And I wrote, ouch. Like, you know that guy felt so bad. Yeah, but it was true. 
I, I, yeah, it's true, but like, I still felt bad for him. But the district attorney says every little saw mark in each and every one of those leg bones and arm bones has got a whole lot intent, a whole lot of intent in it, a whole lot of intent of a man who's getting away with murder. Like at that point, I would like back off about the dismembering the body stuff because you're just like reinforcing that you don't have a case. Or if that's the only thing you're talking about when they've just said like, well, that's why they keep bringing it up because you don't, they don't have anything else to talk about. Well, that's what I, that's what I was going to say. Like, or that's all they go with because that's all they have is they, they can't prove whether or not there was an altercation and the gun went off. They, they can't prove that. So the only thing they can prove is that he dismembered the body and he, he admitted to that. So that's the only thing they have to run with. Yeah, like, I don't, and his attorneys are a lot better than whatever defense attorneys Galveston, Texas has. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his attorneys is like, um, well, DeGaren says, you know, basically they can't prove it. And he says, look at every piece of evidence you heard and consider it. You can't segment it and only look at certain portions of it and ignore everything else. That's not proper. Um, And then his other attorney says, possibly guilty, probably guilty. We all talked about that. What that means is not guilty. Mm -hmm. So then the prosecutor says, what kind of criminal justice system are we going to have when we can't consider everything that happened after, during, and before? It all goes to the man's state of mind. It all goes to to his intent. Um. And DeGaren is like, Bob Durst is not guilty of murder. Whatever mel- whatever else he may have done is for another time and another place. And I wrote, how pissed do you think the prosecutors were that they only charged him with murder? Like, what a kick to the nuts. Like, the defense team earned that multi-millions of dollars that Durst spent on them. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't... Ugh. But the trial lasted six weeks. They come back with a verdict of not motherfucking guilty. And did you notice how shocked um, Durst looked when they said not guilty? Oh, yeah. And his attorneys, too. Mm -hmm. I said, DeGaren looks like he's about to cry or something. The cameras were on Durst, who kind of crumples forward. Durst just looks stunned. Mm -hmm. He leans over and asks, Daguerin, did they say not? And Daguerin's like, yeah. And Durst's like, are you sure? (laughs) He's still stunned. Like, he's still stunned. I would say, like, I will say his reaction did seem somewhat reasonable because, like, he probably is stunned. Like, you think, like, I just admitted that I killed somebody and, like, chopped them up. I'm going to jail for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know like it's just I, I mean I don't and you know I think at the end of any trial even like even if it's like exactly what you want you're kind of preparing yourself for the worst and so like maybe he was shocked by that I don't know I mean I've never been a defendant in criminal court but like I have been in civil court 
And it's like, it's all very overwhelming. And then when they like say that, but see, I guess I've never heard like guilty or not guilty. It's like you wait for the judge to decide. And then like, you like have to listen for certain words for them to pick out to know whether or not like they sided with you or the other person. So it's like kind of confusing. I don't know. And I mean, you've just spent like six weeks being picked apart and everything is out of your hands and out of your control. So you, like, you just really have no clue what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And like, I couldn't imagine being tried for murder. And like, I also wondered, like, so I'm assuming he was in jail the entire time up to the murder. Now, like, does he just get to walk out of the courtroom or like, does he have to go and get processed out in jail? I think they have to get processed out. Yeah, I think that would be like, huh, excuse me. <laughs> I don't want to go back there. Um, Joanne Kangora is speaking at a press conference and she is saying what we all did and it was a big struggle for all of us is we kept going back to the charge that was put forth to the jury as to the actual event, that one moment in time. Um, and then she's being interviewed for... Um, by Andrew Jarecki and she says it was an unpopular opinion that Bob Jarst was found not guilty. The townspeople, friends, relatives, they weren't happy with the verdict. But when Mr. Jarst was on the stand, I felt like he was talking from the heart. Lavelle says through the course of five days of deliberation, Bob never had more than three guilty votes the entire time. The last one that changed her mind, she had a problem finding him not guilty because he had chopped up the body. Lavelle told her, that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to determine if the event that killed Morris Black was murder, or we're here to determine if the event that killed Morris Black was murder or not, not what happened to his body after he was already dead. Um, Cody Cazales looks like he's about to cry and... I really feel bad for him. He says, as a homicide detective, you work for God because the victim is not there to tell the story. You're there to represent the victim. You're there to tell his story. You're doing that for God. To this day, I feel like I let down and his voice breaks and he says, can we stop? And I just felt really bad for him because... Like, he probably does feel like he failed that. Yeah, but he's a detective, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he really, he did his job correctly. I don't think it was his fault. I think it was the the prosecution's fault for presenting it wrong. I agree, but I think where he felt like it was his fault, because then after he testified every single time, like, Bob's attorneys were like, even the lead detective didn't like think they proved like he couldn't prove that it was not self-defense. So like they kept bringing his name up like that. Like, Oh, he even can't defend it. So that's why I think he probably felt that way. And I mean, I think Durst lucked out that Morris Black was a loner and didn't really seem warm or friendly or nice. Like it didn't seem like he had any family. The only picture the documentary even showed, he looked mean as hell. Yeah, he did. Like, you never heard from a single person that would humanize right. him. Like, there were no victim impact statements. There was nothing about, like, 
how their world would be affected by his absence in their life. And, you know, that probably shouldn't affect the jury one way or another, but I think it does. Like, they can see Robert Durst on the stand, like, they can connect with him, and, like, there's just nothing, you know, it's not like in a normal case where you go in and you've got, like, you know, family and friends, like, talking about what a great person this was, you know, like, it just... It wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And what was I, to me in the trial was that they called uh, Durst as the first witness for the defense. Because yeah. usually either the defendant goes last or doesn't go at all. Yeah. When I think most of the time they don't go right. at all. But I do agree in this situation, he had to go. Yeah. Because, And I also think like, like, I think that prosecutor messed up being like when he said well I can't tell what's going on if it's happening the right way it just looks like spaghetti and when the guy was like bloody spaghetti it's like alright like you're stretching mm-hmm. um, I don't know they really only like yeah I mean they just really only got to see and hear from Durst so Jarecki says to Durst you told me on the phone that DeGaron may not want you to talk to me because he wouldn't want to see you in an interview saying that you lied to the jury in Galveston. Durst says, well, they didn't know what I was going to say. So, I mean, they've always felt it, you know, they've got this home run now. Now I get out there and say something that implies I made it all up or that I told the lawyers and that we all got together and made it up or whatever. That's a disaster. So they just wanted to stay away. They just wanted me to stay away. And they said it about a zillion times. You can't help yourself. Right now you are a free man, 100%. You say something inadvertently and you'll find yourself charged in New York or charged in Los Angeles. Yeah, but that, those are the only ones that they can they can charge him with. Like he can say whatever he wants about the Morris Black thing now because of double jeopardy. Yeah, he can. But I think what they were saying is like, if you go in there and say you lied about something, then if they want to charge you with Susan Berman, then they get to bring up like, well, you testified to this in Texas. And then after you did this interview where you actually lied about Mm -hmm. these things. And so it'll like tank his credibility. And DeGaron is like, an interview is a big risk for you. Why do you want to do an interview? And, I mean, I agree. Like, why would you? I wouldn't talk to anyone ever again. I wouldn't be in the United States. If I got acquitted for a murder and I knew there were still two other murders, but they were actively, like, investigating. And I'm fucking rich. And I have got, like, money in my bank. Like, you would never see me in the United States. Yeah, and you'd be going to a place that has no... um... Belize. Straight to Belize. No extradition. Yeah, no extradition laws. Um, Jarecki says, certainly you said to me that you did lie to the jury in Galveston. And I wrote, uh, Jarecki, this dude has killed his friends before. Good luck. (laughs) He said in some way that your lawyer encouraged you to. And I think that Durst interrupts and the look on his face is like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Jarecki is just determined to shoot his shot. Durst says, Well, he didn't encourage me to, 
We went over the oath, and from day one, the oath says, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Just make sure the ones at the end tell the truth, nothing but the truth, that you do exactly that. In terms of the whole truth, if you want to leave out something that does not, uh, which makes you look bad if you tell it, but does not turn into an untruth, well, try it try it if there's something so terrible that you don't want to say it or you think it be construed the wrong way then just leave it out and i said lord this is going off the rails quickly (laughs) directly not dropping it says i'm saying was there something that was relevant in galveston that would have had an influence where you knew that you were saying something that was limited and Darsh says, let me see what else I can think of where they didn't specifically ask it and I didn't specifically go there. I'd have to think about it. Next time you interview me, I'll have that and I'll think of a few things. Jarecki says, should we take a break for a few minutes? So Jarecki gets up and you hear other people talking and Darsh stays in his seats. And he just looks like he's thinking about what just happened, like whatever the interaction just was. He leans forward and whispers, I did not knowingly, purposefully lie. He keeps repeating that. He closes his eyes and says, I did not knowingly, purposefully, or intentionally lie. I did make mistakes. Bob's lawyer comes up and says, they could just hear every word you said. Durst is like, what? His attorney is like, when you were talking to yourself, your mic is hot, so we can't really talk. Darst is like, oh, 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 I was reviewing. His attorney's like, your mic picks everything up. And Darst is like, I hear what you're saying. You can hear everything I said. I never intentionally mean, how do I? I mean, you know, it's a question of not what do I say, but how do I say it? I never intentionally, purposefully lied. I made mistakes. I did not tell the whole truth. Nobody tells the whole truth. And that's where they end episode four. Like, I think the attorney made the whole, like, hot mic thing way worse than it would have been if he just Yeah, he didn't really, like, say much of anything on that, on the hot mic. I think it was more, they were afraid if he said anything else. Because I'm assuming they prepped him, and so I'm, I'm, I would guess that he's. They're worried he's going to say whatever they were mm-hmm. talking, like whatever led up to them coming up to yeah. that. Um, and like I do think it's ridiculous that he is like doing this interview, and I don't like whatever he was saying about like. Like, if it's a lie, you can try it, you can leave it out, whatever. Like, they make it seem like that's a big deal. But I feel like if you've ever had to go to court, like, that's kind of, like, they'll say, don't answer anything unless you're specifically Mm -hmm. asked that. It's not, like, telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth doesn't mean you're telling every aspect of the story. Just, I think it's like more reiterating that if someone asks you a question, you answer completely honestly next. Yeah. Thank you for listening to true crime, true family. Follow us on our Twitter at TCTFP and Instagram at TCTF podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us where you get your podcasts 
so you don't miss an episode, please leave a rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback. Join us next week.